Welcome to Living a Better Life podcast with your host, Madeline Golick. This is a weekly podcast exploring a variety of topics on how you can live a better life, not just physically, but in all aspects of what it means to be human living in a modern world. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only and should not replace professional or medical advice. This podcast is sponsored by Ecophysiotherapy, where their mission is to educate, empower, and rehabilitate you back to health. Without further ado, please enjoy the show. Welcome back, everybody, to the show. So today on the episode, we're going to be talking about all things thyroid, and I am happy to welcome our lovely guest today, Dr. Emily Lipinski, to the show. Welcome. Thanks for having me. So I do this with all of my guests. I figure before we jump into the conversation, we should probably talk about context. Tell us a little bit about you, what you do, and uh, maybe like why thyroid, like why is thyroid your thing? And then we'll just dive right in. Sure. Yeah. I'm a naturopathic doctor and I became a naturopathic doctor because, well, one, I love science. I love biology. Um, My father is in conventional medicine, but I grew up um, going to naturopathic doctors myself and eating a lot of organic foods because my mom was really into natural healing. So uh, growing up with kind of the dichotomy of that led me eventually to naturopathic medicine. And um, well, on uh, my own healing journey, when I was in naturopathic school, uh, naturopathic medical school, I was starting to experience symptoms that I now know are hypothyroid symptoms. So those were um, really easy to gain weight, feeling cold all the time, having a really puffy face, um, dry skin. And I had my blood work tested. Everyone said everything was okay. Fast forward a few years and eventually my blood work did show that I was hypothyroid. And I learned in that moment that when I was experiencing those symptoms, there was a lot more I could have done. There could have been more tests to offer um, me that were never offered. There was dietary changes. There was things naturally I could have done to maybe prevent the need for me to be on lifelong medication. So that is why I have chosen to focus on thyroid disease. I do have it myself. I have can really honestly say that I live symptom free, like 99% of the time. Now, I am currently still on a very small amount of natural medication, but I do a lot of things with uh, my diet and lifestyle and herbs and supplements to keep my thyroid really happy. And I, I work with a lot of patients um, now to do the same and to bring the, the thyroid gland back into balance. Um, wonder, I mean, sometimes our personal journeys are the things that like really allow us to help, um, people because we can understand, right. We, we kind of know, we, we know what it's like to be sort of in the shoes. Right. And I think that does also make a powerful impact. Um, okay. So like, I will admit, I, like, I mean, I've heard of thyroid. I, I know of it, like as, you know, a biological, is it even an organ? See, I don't even know. So what I mean to say is I don't really know very much. So I'm going to be, I'm going to start right at the beginning. What the heck is our thyroid? Like, is it an organ? Like, what is it? What is its job? What is it supposed to do? Like, why is it important? Yes. Yeah. So the thyroid gland, it's a butterfly shaped uh, endocrine organ. So it's a hormone gland located in the neck. Just um, some, some women and men can see it. In men, it's right below the Adam's apple. And um, it's very small. It's only about two centimeters in diameter, but it is really, really powerful. So it makes two very important hormones, T3 and T4. And those hormones are responsible for virtually every single um, cell in the body. And a lot of people know the thyroid gland to be associated with metabolism because it is, it it helps the body process and detoxify. It keeps our um, bowels moving. So that's one of the main symptoms, which we'll talk about in in a moment is when people have more sluggish bowels, constipation, easily to gain weight, we might look at the thyroid gland because the thyroid gland is supposed to be keeping that working really well. 
Um, the, the thyroid gland, those hormones are also re responsible for cognitive function, for the heart beating properly, literally every organ it helps to make go and keep up its normal function. Sounds like it's really important. It is. Okay. It is. So, so what are, so can we talk about the difference between hypo and hyperthyroidism? Yes, that's a great question. So the hypothyroid, hypo means underactive. So in hypothyroidism, the thyroid gland is acting slower than it should be. So it's more sluggish. It's not producing as much of that T3 and T4 hormone that it should be. In hyperthyroidism, the hyper meaning overactive, the thyroid gland is becoming too, is acting too strongly. So we're getting an elevation in those, those T3 and T4 hormones. Uh, so both hypothyroidism and hyperthyroidism is in the population. Hypothyroidism though is vastly more common than hyper. Okay. Now, how does, like, is this something somebody's born with, or is this like an environmental thing? Like, is it something that just like develops or is it something that's just like hiding in the genes waiting to spring up? Like how, how does one develop a thyroid problem? So there's a few reasons why there is, you could be born with a thyroid problem and it's known as con congenital hypothyroidism. It's that's actually quite rare. So it's not really not all that common. Uh, then Previously, the most common reason for lower functioning thyroid was not enough iodine in the diet. But uh, years ago, iodized salt was added to areas that were inland. Um, a lot of people that live close to the sea and eat a lot of seafood and so forth um, didn't really have thyroid issues. But we noticed that people that live inland like in Ontario, um, we're having more thyroid issues because they didn't have exposure to the iodine and the salt. So, but we now have table salt that's iodized and that seems to have taken care of the lack of iodine problem for, for some people. The main reason why, and I, I say that with a caveat because the main reason why we're seeing so much hypothyroidism and the reason for most hyperthyroidism is because of an auto, <clears throat> autoimmune disease. So when, when someone develops autoimmunity, it means that their body starts to actually attack itself. And in the case of, of this, the body starts to attack the thyroid gland. Most of the time, the thyroid over time becomes underactive and becomes hypothyroidism. But in some cases, the body could attack the thyroid gland and cause hyperthyroidism, and that would be known as Graves' disease. Mm -hmm. So... And why the iodine piece is interesting in that is for years, so many people have said, okay, well, we, the, the thyroid gland needs iodine. Um, we iodized our salt. We're now finding that there may be a piece with the iodine that's found in salt, perhaps too much iodine or the type of iodine in the salt may be actually also triggering the autoimmune response on the thyroid gland. Okay. So why would the body want to start attacking its own self? So there's kind of three, I look at the development of autoimmunity as kind of like a three-step process. First, you have to have a genetic link, as you mentioned. So someone in your family has to have an autoimmune disease. It doesn't necessarily have to be thyroid autoimmunity. It could be lupus. It could be rheumatoid arthritis. Um, but somewhere, it could be your mom, it could be your grandma, there has to be that gene that would have been passed down for you. Most people, some people say, oh, yeah, my mom had hypothyroidism, my sister has hypothyroidism, I'm probably more prone to it. Some people have no idea that, you know, their grandmother had rheumatoid arthritis, which is an autoimmune disease, because they just knew that grandma had, you know, stiff joints and maybe has some sort of arthritis. So that has to be present. Then there has to be um, exposure to triggers for autoimmunity to develop. And we are all exposed to triggers that could cause autoimmunity all the time. So toxins, car exhaust, for example, um, stuff that's found in common body washes, hair, hair shampoo, um, even the fluoride and the chlorine in our water are toxins that we know have been linked to changes in immunity and development of autoimmunity. 
Western diet, cigarette smoke. So some of these things we can avoid, but some of them we, we just by living in our world, we are exposed to some of these toxins. We can't do much about that. And then the third final pillar of the development of the autoimmunity needs to be leaky gut or intestinal permeability has to be present. So a lot of people now have heard this term leaky gut. It really means that the lining of the gastrointestinal tract should have something known as tight junctions. So it's almost like you could see this, like, like the skin of the intestines should be really tightly knit together. When someone develops leaky gut, you have these, these tight junctions become a little bit looser. So it's not that you have food particles passing through your gut, but you could, you have antigens, little um, structures of, you know, food digestion pass through into the bloodstream and the body sees it as a foreign invader and starts to attack it. Right. Okay. So food's not really coming through, but like little bacterias or like little pieces of like broken down kind of, I guess, food or like particles of food might be able to pass through byproducts of digestion, we could say Yeah, okay. And so those should all stay in the digestive tract. But with leaky gut, they get out into the bloodstream and the body, you know, obviously sees like, what is that? Let's attack it, make an antibody and start an inflammatory, inflammatory response that can lead to autoimmunity. Mm hmm. Now you mentioned genetics and, and obviously like the genetic piece is kind of like, it's something that you just, you have, but, uh, not everybody who has a genetic linkage will necessarily develop it. Right. Like, or That's is right. it like, if you have the gene, you will get it or, no. are we to, or so epigenetics plays a bit of a role, Absolutely. meaning it's, it's not a sentence. If you have the gene, it's That's right. the other, the other pillars, um, sort of need to be present in order for Absolutely. those genes to be triggered. Absolutely. And there's so much, you know, uniqueness in that someone could carry the gene for it and be a smoker and be exposed to all these toxins and eat, you know, McDonald's three times a week. And for whatever reason, never develop leaky gut and autoimmunity. And then you could have someone that carries the gene and, you know, smoke for a few months of their life. And all of a sudden they've got leaky gut and they've, you know, start the development of autoimmunity. And we don't know why some people, you know, are just more prone to that than others, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's the tricky piece too, right? Like in pain science, it's like, you know, people can have a lot of, you know, structural changes and experience of no pain whatsoever. And meanwhile, you know, for others, it could be something as simple as a small cut all of a sudden starts this like cascade of, of pain. And, you know, we're, we're all trying to figure out those like nitty gritty uh, details. I want to turn to the second pillar because that's, you're saying like environmental toxins, some of which we have control, some of which um, you know, we don't have control over, I mean, okay. Smoking kind of seems simple, like just don't, don't smoke and you right. remove that toxin, but you're saying like fluoride and, you know, product, well with products, again, it's easy to just not use those products, yes. <laughs> but things like in our water, in our, in our foods, you know, is, can we, can we do anything to protect ourselves against this? So, I mean, yeah, some of the things like if you want to delve into all the different toxins that could be, you know, precursors to development of autoimmunity or be bad for the thyroid, of course, you can do your best to take all those out and filter your water and, and, and all that. Um, but if you, if you're not going to go down that road, and I do cautious, caution most people because there's no way you can avoid all the toxins. You want to just make sure that you're building your immune system up to be able as, as much as possible to be able to combat and detoxify these, you know, toxins that are just part of our modern world now. And I think there's, and we can get into this later too, if you want or now, but I think there's a few different ways to do that. Like one is, you know, through diet and lifestyle, but also through, you know, the mental emotional aspect and um, making sure that you're tapping into the peripheral nervous system and making sure that you don't have too much cortisol pumping through the body. Cause that's really weakens the immune system. So doing a lot of 
you know, relaxation and, and, and that stuff actually has a huge impact on immunity. Okay. Well, I mean, you're bringing it up. So let's just, you know, like, let's just talk about it. Right. So, so, okay. So kind of moving away from biological, moving into kind of psychosocial, emotional, uh, because really it isn't separate. Yeah. It totally impacts everything that goes on in our body. So you, you mentioned kind of relaxation, you know, what are some other examples or some practices that you commonly, you you know, sort of mention to clients because there's so many things, but are there any common things that is like really held in by scientific literature to show that it, you know, improves the drop in cortisol and has positive effects? Probably a lot of what you know, too, the, the <laughs> mindfulness, you know, yeah, yeah. mindfulness, huge, there's so much research to support um, mindfulness and, and the beneficial impact specifically on the immune system that mindfulness does have. Um, when we're talking specifically about the thyroid gland, so in um, energy or spiritually, spiritual medicine, the thyroid is responsible is and associated with the throat chakra, which is um, to speak your truth or to express yourself. So sometimes, um, and again, it's not always the case, but I, I have had patients where they say, you know, yeah, when I, when I, that's definitely something I have difficulty with, you know, speaking up for myself or, or not speaking my truth or not expressing myself. And when they work on that aspect of their, their self, that seems to also improve the situation. So, um, again, not, you know, hardcore science, but there is something, something to that. Actually, actually, I, I just, I'm having a thought here because I'm really doing a lot of research into polyvagal theory and understanding the peripheral nervous system's way of responding. And what that sounds like is, um, sort of like a parasympathetic response known as fawning. Okay. So fawning is so basically the first is social. In, so our, in the hierarchy of the autonomic nervous system, we're looking at safety and social engagement, right? Okay. We look for safety in others. We, we look for safety in our environment. If we can't find that safety in the social and we don't feel safe, we're going to go into fight or flight, right? Which right. is that sympathetic uh, nervous system output. Then if I can't, if I still can't feel, if I still can't get to safety and social engagement in, like if I can't run from the situation and I can't fight the situation, then you go into more of the like dorsal vagus nerve, which is like a freeze. So like dissociation, you know, depression, uh, basically you kind of try to, you you just shut down, like your body's safety mechanism or survival mechanism is like, I'm going to shut down. But on the flip side, um, I, I discovered this fawning. And so fawning is like where you people please, where you can't say no to things, despite the fact that you want to say no, you know, you, you take care of others, and you do everything for others, but don't take time for, for yourself, which is again, a slightly different, but it's going to have health effects too, right? Because you're not Absolutely. taking care of yourself. Yeah. You're not speaking your truth because you want to avoid conflict. Yes. Right. Yeah. To stay in safety. I need to avoid conflict and to stay social and be accepted. I need to people please because I don't want to be rejected because if I'm rejected, then I don't feel safe. And anyways, right. it's just, it's just something really interesting that I've been like trying to look into and read at, but the, the sort of what you're saying is like not speaking your truth that, you know, that's a like lower end um, like parasympathetic response that doesn't really allow the system to do what it needs to do. And I'm so glad you brought that up because it, it that I, I definitely have seen that pattern in a lot of patients and not to say that men don't do that, because I I know some men do, but I think that people pleasing so forth does seem to be more of a feminine female attribute, generally speaking. And um, hypo and hyperthyroidism is much more common in women than it is Mm -hmm. in men. So hypothyroidism now in North America affects, depending on what stat, either one in six to one in eight women at some point in their lifetime. So yeah. yeah, definitely really interesting. Yeah. And, and obviously we, as women, 
have been wired for bonding. Yes. And social, social engagement is really important for us as women to feel connected, to feel understood and heard and all of those things. So we're all striving, um, you know, for, for connection, even if it's coming from a source that is not a good source, you know, like is not a good source of, um, you know, positive reinforcement or a positive relationship. Like, yeah. yeah, it's it's just really interesting because, yeah, and so it seems it makes sense that it would show up, you know, sort of more in women than it would in men. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So back to that original question, too, of, yeah. of what are some of the things to, you know, from a mental, emotional, spiritual standpoint to, for the thyroid gland or the immune system, we've got the mindfulness, we have taking a look at, at that, exactly what you said, it, are, you know, are you constantly pleasing others? Are you not speaking your truth? Do you need to speak up? I've had a few women actually say that once they started singing and being able to release that sound, um, that was very healing for their thyroid gland. Some other things, acupuncture, we know that there's been, you know, only a few studies, but we do have some studies showing um, the use of acupuncture to be beneficial for the thyroid gland. And we know that acupuncture can also be very um, good for the, the immune system, for the nervous system. And I'm sure you've looked a lot into this, that the, the pairing between the nervous system and the immune system. So how when yeah. we you know, relax the nervous system, how that enhances the immune system and vice versa. If our nervous system's constantly on high alert, that really can dampen down the immune system and make it weaker and more susceptible to things like autoimmune disease. Yeah. And and I mean, we see, I mean, obviously I study that in the context of, um, you know, chronic pain, but you know, if this, you know, even in the junction between two nerve cells, there's an immune cell sitting right there taking in information from how one nerve is talking to the other and it's picking up information. Again, we have to think about our nervous system as the electrical system that speaks to the mothership, which is like the brain to keep us, uh, to keep us alive, right? Like that's, that's its ultimate job is like, we need to keep you alive. And so our system is going to be you know, is set up from an evolutionary perspective to ensure it is receiving all the information from everywhere, from our mind, from our body, from our environment. It needs our, like, we need to know what's kind of going on, but this is happening under, in the subconscious layer, in the autonomic, right? In the automatic system. So this is not part of our conscious awareness, Um, but when we bring our conscious awareness to understand that this is the system that's working in the background and it needs to be optimized, whether it's for pain, autoimmune, um, or other health related conditions, like this is why we talk about it now, obviously like talking with a psychotherapist to dive deeper into those things, because it does impact the physical body. Absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, right now in our world, currently we're in a very um, new, I like uncharted territory for a lot of people. And I'd say that I, I have not talked to someone or, you know, spoken to a patient in the last few months that haven't has not experienced some sort of stress because of the current situation we're in. So now more than ever, making sure that you're looking at that aspect within yourself and choosing something, even if it's, you know, just starting with deep breathing, deep breathing alone, it's so simple, and it can be so powerful um, to really work on, um, you know, uh, nurturing that nervous system. Yeah. And relaxing that nervous system. I was system. just thinking of like grounding, right? The grounding yeah. and the mindfulness, like grounding yourself into the moment, like think about where you are right now in this moment, look at your environment, feel your body, feel your body in the environment, you know, and asking yourself like, am I safe right now in this moment? Right. Can yes. be just a simple thing. And then breathing with that for a couple minutes to just bring us to the present moment, because I think part of the stress problem and like I'm super guilty of this like crazy guilty of this is playing the what if game or playing the worst case scenario or like trying to solve a problem that I don't actually currently have right like it's like I have a situation but I'm trying to solve 
like what I think this situation is going to turn into. Yes. That's the mindfulness piece of kind of bringing back to like, okay, what's actually happening right now in the second, like right now I'm sitting in this room doing a podcast. Nobody's around me. Nothing's happening. Right. So, you know, it's a great way of just like checking in and bringing awareness to how is my nervous system feeling right now? Yeah. Yes. And I think there's a lot of people that also feel almost guilty that they have that, like that they're constantly, you know, maybe worrying about this or saying, but I, we, we have to remind ourselves that we're wired to check in like that. I mean, when you, when we go back hundreds of years, our survival as a human species was based on who was making sure that their roof didn't leak or that there wasn't, you know, a monsoon coming or there a snowstorm and they didn't, they weren't, you know, prepared for that. Did they have enough food? So for survival, the human a species is wired to be concerned about these things, right? But now we live in a different world where we have to make sure that we're not taking that to a new level. And just like you say, we are safe. You know, most people are are safe most of the time and, and bringing it back to that present moment. I just think that we haven't really been taught or given a lot of like knowledge around the fact that we need to bring ourselves back down. Yes. Right. Like we need to bring ourselves back. Like in nature, this is built in. Like, you know, if, if a lion chases a gazelle and the gazelle gets away, it shakes it off and goes back to grazing as if nothing happened. Right. Where we right. kind of, you know, because of our conscious brain and we think about it, we kind of keep it alive in our nervous system for longer than it needs to be because we don't have the, the techniques or the skills to, um, basically, we call it, you know, it, it, in the realm of, I guess, psychotherapy or in psychology is like closing the loops, right? right. Like returning yes. your, your system back into a sense of safety. And like, we're not really taught that. So then when we're stuck in fight or flight, you're right. Our immune system isn't kind of doing what it needs to do. Right. And so, and, and kind of to that point too, we're talking about some of the other triggers for autoimmune disease, development of thyroid disease, we know chronic low-grade infections can also be a trigger. So a very common one is a chronic low-grade strep infection. And this is something um, that's not just, you know, it, it happened to me when I was younger. I had, there was some, one year, I remember having six strep infections in one, one year. Um, and strep is obviously is stored in the throat, but it also can be stored in the gut. Um, so where that's where you start to see the pairing too between leaky gut and, and um, thyroid disease. But the immune system, when you're constantly under stress, actually doesn't, you know, it might not be robust enough to completely clear the infection. So maybe you'll clear like 95% of it, you'll feel generally well again, but in the background, your body's still holding on to this little bit of infection. And when, for some people that that's the, the missing link to finally really helping the thyroid or really reducing the autoimmune attack is actually finally getting rid of that infection. And I have not seen one case where we're not working on the stress piece to actually fully get rid of that infection, which again, most people wouldn't think, oh, you know, I've got to take care of my stress to kill the strep infection, but (laughs) you do. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, well, that's just it, right? It's, it's kind of like that we need to remember, you know, mind body isn't like mind body spirit approach is not necessarily a woo-woo thing. It's like, it is physical. It's 100%, you know, everything is kind of tied together. And so we'll oftentimes go to the medical system, hoping for the biological treatments without looking at, well, what are all the other pieces that made up that may have been driving our biology to make these types of responses for survival, right? Like the body is constantly trying to do what it needs to do to survive. Yeah right? It's just, we're not supposed to be in survival mode 24 seven. Right. Exactly. Um, so we talked about like mindfulness, I assume like, you know, I, I would think like yoga practices, cause certainly like in the chronic pain realm, like yoga practices, breathing, um, you know, different movement based practices because of its effect on the nervous system. I would, I would, I would argue to say it probably has really positive effects on the immune system. It, absolutely. Yep. Yep. For sure. And 
Another thing that's not really a practice, but I do talk about this in my book too, um, is exposure to electromagnetic fields. And so also known as EMFs and EMFs now are ubiquitous in our environment. I mean, most people have Wi-Fi in their home and um, they're exposed to, you know, talking on the cell phone a lot, but for, we know that EMFs because they're energy and when they're in within your close to your body all the time, they, they can indirect, you know, induce a more stress response in the body. And for some people, a particular group of people known as like having something called electro hypersensitivity, they really resonate with that. They're like, Oh, yeah, like, I sometimes feel that or I notice I get after talking on the phone a lot or being on the computer a lot, I get really tired, I feel really drained, especially for those people turning off your Wi Fi at night, making sure your your cell phone's not close to your head at night. Um, making sure that if you know, not having a TV in your room, or if you do making sure it's really far away from your bed so that at night, at least you can really try and have that deep rest because we know that people that have a lot of electronics in their room, actually it, it can interfere with their sleep and that, that restfulness period. It then affects your immune system because you're not sleeping well. Right. I don't know yeah. about anybody out there, but when I haven't had a good sleep, that's oftentimes when that little, that little bug gets in yes. and uh, takes residence takes residence for a little while. So, so improving, improving sleep. So, so we've sort of, I mean, you know, you, you've sort of talked about like as much as possible, removing toxins is really important. Um, Lifestyle changes such as like relaxation and, and I'm sure exercise is in that loop, like the importance Absolutely. of yes. for, for immune system and, and hormonal health. And just, we all know the health benefits of exercise, yeah. generally speaking, um, yes. sleep, and then I, I assume diet as well plays a huge diet's role. a big one. So of course, I mean, the big thing, most people know they should be avoiding junk foods, processed foods, you know, refined sugars, those things, um, people know it, but we still see that a lot of Canadians and Americans are still going and and eating these foods, especially when they're stressed. Um, And these foods, it's not just I've, you know, I've spoken to a lot of people that say, I know it's not good for my weight. It's not good, you know, it's going to put weight on me. But it's like, that's not even the, I mean, I know it's important, but that's not even the issue. The issue is, is that these foods are incredibly pro-inflammatory and they do actually harm your gut. They harm your gut lining. And um, so when we're wanting to work on strengthening the gut lining, strengthening the immune system, we definitely need to remove these foods. And and a lot of this research is showing, yes, sugar is bad, but from an inflammatory standpoint, the oils found in these foods are worst. So the canola oil, soya oil, um, corn oil, these these vegetable-based oils are incredibly pro-inflammatory, not just from an autoimmune standpoint, but also really not good for the heart. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. Um, what about things like gluten and dairy? Because I know a lot of people kind of have this like sort of barrier to wanting to like go to a naturopathic doctor about their problem because they sort of have this idea in their mind, I'm going to go there and they're going to tell me to take, to to stop dairy and gluten. They're just going to tell me, and I'm just not ready to do that. Yeah. You know, is it just dairy and gluten? Like, I'm sure it plays a part because it's a set, it's a food sensitivity for a lot of people, but like, yeah. you know, are there kind of, you know, are there ways around, like, are there other things so, and ways and it around depends, that? Like, it depends with what we're talking about. And I want to say blanket statement. And you're so, you're so right. A lot of NDs do say, take a gluten and dairy. And I don't think it's because gluten and dairy are inherently bad, but the gluten and dairy that we have, is so different than even what my baba, like my grandmother had, you know, she had dairy, she had cows that she could milk and she just drink the milk from the cows that were eating grass that were on our farm. It wasn't pasteurized. And I'm not saying that pasteurized is better than unpasteurized or unpasteurized is better than pasteurized. But when we pasteurize cow's milk, it changes the protein structure and it becomes harder for our gut to digest and process. Right. So 
Um, a lot of dairy that we have now, obviously in Canada, it's all pasteurized. And it also is most of the time from cows that have been fed a diet of corn and soy. So that, um, and a lot of the cows are actually over milked. So if we look at it under the microscope, we can see pus cells and blood cells in that milk. So again, very different than how our ancestors grew up and had that relationship with dairy, which was very beneficial, I think, for the human species. It's changed a little bit now. Likewise, with gluten in, in the 80s, about 1985, we started to genetically modify most of our of our um, wheat to produce a lot more gluten um, because gluten is what it sounds like. It's, it's a protein that's gluey. So it makes those beautiful, like nicely risen type of bread products that we all love. So it's very popular from a baking perspective or um, a commercial baking perspective to make really beautiful tasting bread products. But it becomes very hard for the gut to digest all that gluey protein. So with thyroid specifically though, I do say if you have autoimmune disease and with autoimmune thyroid and you're only going to do one thing, I have seen such tremendous results from removing gluten, just starting to remove gluten, commit to it for like three months. And, and the reason why is, um, Glute, because gluten is harder on the gut to digest, um, we know that the, the thyroid gland makes these T3 and T4 hormone. It makes 90% T4. It needs to be converted to T3 in the, in the body. And T3 is the active thyroid hormone. A lot of it's converted to T3 in the gut. And for whatever reason, when we have indigestion and when there seems to be a lot of gluten in the system, that conversion may not happen as efficiently and effectively. Mm -hmm. uh, we also know that we have a study looking at Hashimoto's, so autoimmune hypothyroid patients, the, they went gluten-free for, I believe it was six months. Um, and in that six months time there, uh, and then a, a group of them didn't go gluten-free, just ate normally. Um, the ones that went gluten-free, their antibodies dropped tremendously. And it was actually one of the the antibodies to the thyroid gland. So those are TPO and TGAB for people that do know about these thyroid antibodies. Those are antibodies that are specific to the thyroid gland. Uh, for myself, I actually, when I first found out that I had autoimmune thyroid, that was the only thing I did. I went on the conventional medication and I went gluten-free and my antibodies dropped within half of what they should have been within three months, which from a scientific literature's perspective really wasn't heard of. Like that just doesn't happen. Once you have antibodies, you're positive for antibodies. A lot of the literature says most likely you'll, you'll just slowly increase within your time, like, you know, your years. So we don't fully understand why that gluten, some people say there, there may be some sort of molecular mimicry, like some sort of the, the body is seeing the gluten particle as some sort of, um, that may, might mimic something that the thyroid produces. So there seems to, there might be some cross reaction with that, but that is why you know, from a dietary perspective, aside from avoiding those inflammatory oils, which I just, you know, really aren't great. But if you can even try going gluten-free for a few weeks, I'd say about 70% of patients say they do that within three weeks, they have improvement in symptoms. Okay, question now. Um, what happens if you just leave your thyroid, like, I, like, 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 you don't know you have a thyroid issue. Like right. what's bad about not regulating your thyroid? Like if you just did nothing and like nothing, what, like what, like what would that so, do? So if you have, so there's a few different levels of thyroid disease. So for the first is this, what I see a lot of is a subclinical hypothyroidism. So the TSH, which is your thyroid stimulating hormone that's put out by your brain, that's the gold standard for, for testing diagnosis and treating thyroid disease in Canada, the US, that TSH is maybe hanging out like it's, it's above 2.5, usually in a subclinical hypothyroid patient. Um, the, the lab values for a good TSH, most like life labs, let's say, which is the most common popular lab in, in Canada, says that TSH should be under four. 
I know we know and this, the science says that any TSH above 2.5, we should probably be looking a little bit more at the thyroid gland. When the TSH goes over four, so it gets into six, seven, eight, but your T3 and T4 hormone levels are still normal, that's known as, as subclinical hypothyroidism. So it's a subclinical situation. We know that the thyroid's having difficulty keeping up with the production, but it's still producing the hormones it needs to. In that case, if you're subclinically hypothyroid, you know your TSH is not where it should be, but your your body's keeping up with it. If you just leave it, most of the time, like I think the research shows well over 90%, you will become at some point overtly hypothyroidism. So in overt hypothyroidism, your TSH is really high and your thyroid, you do not have enough thyroid hormones. Your, your, your thyroid gland is not keeping up with that response. So your T3 or T4 hormones are too low. In that case, most, if you didn't do anything, you could, uh, you could have a heart attack because your heart would stop because it wouldn't have enough thyroid hormones. Wow. Okay. So yeah, uh, not a, not a good thing to leave, uh, you know, left alone. So I want to ask because you say like subclinical and, you know, you have lab values and you go to your doctor, you get your test done, your, you know, your TSH comes back like within normal range, but you feel not very good. Um, you know, like why, why is the, I guess maybe the question is, you know, in those cases, like, is this thyroid, being like, is thyroid stuff being missed and why? Um, yeah, so a lot of it is, a lot of subclinical hypothyroidism is being missed because okay. we're not testing the antibodies to the thyroid gland in a conventional setting in Canada, the US at the moment. So let's say you have the common symptoms of hypothyroidism. So most of the patients that come into my practice are, yes, I've been slowly gaining weight. I have some brain fog. I notice I'm not going to the bathroom as much. Um, my hair's starting to fall out. I'm feeling really fatigued. I have these symptoms of hypothyroidism. I keep getting my lab. My doctor's saying everything's okay. But if I look on Google, I literally have most of the symptoms of hypothyroidism. So in that case, we then say, okay, well, uh, let's see your TSH. Most of those cases, the TSH is not right where it should be under 2.5, maybe it's three or 3.5. So it's below what the lab's saying normal, but we know from a medical textbook standard, it's out of that range that's ideal. So already that's the first tip off plus with the symptoms. And then we test their antibodies, which is the anti-TPO and the anti-TG. Um, and this is just a simple lab test. And again, I'd say like 80% of the time those antibodies come back positive. So what we can do then is we know that they're subclinically hypothyroid and they do are, they're positive for uh, Hashimoto's autoimmunity. They have the autoimmune disease that's attacking their thyroid gland. We can use changes in diet, like going gluten-free, like using certain herbs and supplements to reduce that antibody attack. Definitely focusing on stress, you know, putting in those stress reducing activities and help, you know, helping them commit to those things to reduce the antibodies. And if we get in there early enough, there's, I've seen a lot of cases where they, their thyroid starts to regulate better again, because the attack is off the thyroid gland and they never need the medication or perhaps over time, they still may need medication, but maybe just a little bit to help their thyroid keep going. When we don't look at those antibodies, obviously that antibody attack just doesn't stop on its own. So those antibodies keep getting worse and worse. Eventually they're diagnosed with thyroid disease which happened to me, it was like, oh yeah, well now you're hypo, now you're hypothyroid. And we just had to wait for your TSH to go this high. And then our solution is we're going to give you some medication that you'll take for life. And that's that. Meanwhile, I had this whole antibody response in my body attacking my thyroid. That's why, you know, and if once I started working on that, that's when my symptoms actually got a lot better, even before, even after going on medication. Question. Uh, so the medication, um, does the medication actually stop the attack on the thyroid? Okay. I didn't, I kind of had this inkling, like it's going to increase your thyroid hormone production, but the thing that's attacking it is left completely unaddressed. Right. That's right. That, and that is the big, that is why I chose to write a book. And that was my big, because the root cause of what is going on is completely being missed. So 
and levoxythyrine, which is the thyroid hormone, it's one of the top five medications in North America that's given out to help the thyroid. And, and really what it is, it's just synthetic T4 hormone. So your, your thyroid gland stops working because it's under attack. So we'll just give your body the hormone. So because it's under attack, it can't do its job. So here's a synthetic hormone to take, and then you'll be okay. But your body keeps that attack going. And what happens is most people over time, over a lifetime of having high amounts of antibodies attack the thyroid gland, your body starts to attack something else. So this is why we see a stronger incidence of multiple autoimmune diseases. First is thyroid, and then oh, the person also develops fibromyalgia, and then they develop rheumatoid arthritis. And you start to see these, you know, it's not just one autoimmune, it's multiple autoimmunes as you get older, because the, uh, the immune system's never actually been fully addressed. Right. Right. Okay. Let's, uh, and so like, that's it, it. Yeah. That's not, that's not a good thing to have happening and cascading. Um, secondary question related to like meds, like once you're on meds, like that's, that's that. Not a hundred percent. Um, it used to be thought that, yeah, once you're on meds, you're on them for life. I say that once you're on them for eight months or longer, for whatever reason, that kind of seems to be the magic number, it is more difficult to get off. It's definitely a lot easier to reduce the need for medication, especially if you have these antibodies. Once we reduce the antibody attack in your body, your thyroid naturally starts working better again. And a lot of times we can at least reduce how much you need to take. Right. right. Um, and with the medication, piece two, there's the levoxythyrine that does work very well for some people. It's a classic medication for thyroid disease. There's also desiccated thyroid, which is T3 plus T4 hormone combined. It's still a prescription-based medication. Uh, it needs to be obtained though from a compounding pharmacy. And for some people, I find that people that are still really struggling with weight gain, giving the person the T3 hormone in conjunction with the T4 can be a game changer can really make a difference. So that's another piece to consider. Amazing. This is, this has been really, really educational. Like, uh, just, just, just to ask, you know, and just be like, all right, what, what's, what's, you know, what's going on here. I'm sure it gets a little more complicated and there's way more things that you do like in your clinical practice, but I want to talk about your book. Now, tell us about your book. What's in the book. What are people going to learn in your book? Like, Tell, tell, tell yeah. me more. So it's called Healing Your Thyroid Naturally. It is available on Amazon, Barnes and Noble, Chapters Indigo. And um, the book is basically, it talks a lot about what we just discussed, but essentially your thyroid, what causes hypothyroidism, the things you can do to, you know, avoid and remove those things that cause hypothyroidism, autoimmune hypothyroidism. And then it includes um, what I call a thyroid healing diet. So um, a, a full diet and meal plan on how to eat if you have hypothyroidism and herbs and supplements, the, that self-care, the de-stressing piece. So it's essentially uh, a comprehensive guide to use if you're wanting something else aside from just medication to really heal your thyroid gland and really working on root cause. So because 90% of people that have hypothyroidism do have these antibodies, using this guide to reduce those antibodies attack to allow the thyroid gland to heal naturally. Amazing. Um, I was going to ask a question. And of course, like it went in my brain and then fizzled out of my brain. Um, hopefully it will come back to me. Um, okay, oh, I wanted to comment about the meal plan. That was it. Because yes. I think, you know, one of the things that I find really challenging when I'm trying to like read about, you know, like dietary changes is like, okay, remove this, add these foods, like eat this. And then it's like, what do I actually do with these ingredients, like, how do I use them? I don't even know. Right. Like it's, and, and I think that's the really difficult, discouraging part is like not knowing what the heck you're supposed to cook. What are yes. you supposed to eat? What are some recipes? Because, you know, we have, like, I cook a certain way. And if all of a yes. sudden I'm removing certain foods and I cook a certain way, like, 
I don't all of a sudden know how to like make a vegan meal or a vegetarian meal or like something. And I think that becomes the, the really big barrier. Like I can do it for a week. Right. right? But then it's like, I don't have any other, I don't know like how to cook this way. Right. Yes. Um, so the meal plan that you've sort of included, like, can you tell us a little bit more about, you know, like just generally speaking, like you have breakfast options, like, is it a breakfast, lunch, and dinner with snacks? I have about 25 or 30 recipes included in there. Um, lists of where you can obtain these things, um, kind of stores you should focus on. And then also any, a few different ingredients that I use a lot. And I talk about my patients, but I know may not be as common, like coconut flour. What is it? Where can you find it? Um, arrowroot flour is also really great for gluten-free cooking. So again, what's that? Where you, How you can find that, how you can use that. So guiding people and hand-holding a little bit, which is, is important. Well, here's the thing about coconut flour. You can't use it like you would use regular flour. No. Because your recipe will not turn out speaking of personal experience because coconut flour is very dry. You need a lot more liquid and you actually need a little bit less flour than that you're and coconut flour is much better used when paired with other flours. So I have recipes where I'm using arrowroot flour because arrowroot flour is really sticky and gluey. And then you're putting a little bit of coconut flour in there and coconut flour is really great for fiber and so forth. So yeah. Yeah. So I think that's super awesome. Like combo to, to, to have, um, like meals, like idea, like certainly food ideas, but then also like, how do I actually cook? Right. Really yes. important. Um, if people want to find you, follow you, work with you, where, where can, where, where can people find you? My website is great, emilylipinski.com. And then also I use Instagram, I'd say more than Facebook. And so my Instagram handle is at Dr. Lipinski. Excellent. Wonderful. And what we'll do is we'll put uh, the links uh, where to find you and uh, we'll find a link to your book and we'll put that in the show notes to make it easy for people to be able to click and uh, you know find this uh, find this information um, I want to I want to just thank you very much for coming on and having this like chat with me about this because uh, I know I've learned uh, a lot and certainly you know learned about you know just being persistent with like l- just getting lab tests done like if something doesn't yes. feel right really advocating for yourself so um, or finding you know finding a naturopathic doctor that will uh, you know certainly you know take the testing a little bit further um, because nobody wants to feel bad no no, we have to advocate for ourselves. We really do. Yeah. yeah. Well, thank you for having me. Absolutely. And of course, I always want to thank our listeners for joining us on the episode. If you know anybody who has a thyroid, you know, thyroid concerns, like definitely share this out because I, I I found lots of good tidbits in here. Um, and of course, subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss out on all of our cool episodes. So on that note, we'll connect with everybody next time. Bye for now. Thank you for listening to Living a Better Life podcast. Make sure to subscribe to our show to stay up to date with our latest and greatest episodes. We would also love to hear your comments, suggestions, and reviews. Thanks again. Until the next episode. Bye for now.